Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Lords, Fatima, Guadalupe, have you ever wondered about the process that authenticates an apparition of the Blessed Virgin Mary, makes it worthy of public devotion? On this episode, Bishop talks about an alleged apparition that happened here in our diocese, what the investigation process looked like, and what the commission concluded. Then Bishop wraps up the series on matriarchs of the Old Testament by pointing out parallels between their lives and the life of Mary. At the end of the show, Bishop answers questions from listeners on the COVID pandemic's financial impact, the last time Bishop went swimming, and more. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman here with our bishop. Thank you again for taking some time for us, Bishop. You're welcome, Kyle. Always good to be with you. Good to have you here. And also, we've got the Pentecost coming up this Sunday to celebrate. Hard to believe it's Pentecost already. Yeah, the end of the Easter season. We just celebrated the Ascension of the Lord. I love these feasts at the Easter season. The Sunday after Pentecost is Trinity Sunday and then Corpus Christi. So they're all beautiful, beautiful solemnities. Yeah. Hopefully, if you're willing, we can talk about Trinity next week, kind of gearing up for that. But to start off Yeah, that's off an with... easy topic to discuss. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing confusing about the, the Trinity. Right. The greatest mystery. Yeah. Would you like to start us off in prayer? Yes. And since you reminded me that Pentecost is coming up, I'll, I'll do the beautiful prayer called Come Creator Spirit. Okay. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit, Creator, come. From your bright heavenly throne, come take possession of our souls and make them all your own. You who are called the paraclete, best gift of God above, the living spring, the living fire, sweet unction, and true love. You who are sevenfold in your grace, finger of God's right hand, his promise, teaching little ones to speak and understand. O guide our minds with your blessed light, with love our hearts inflame, and with your strength which never decays, confirm our mortal frame. Far from us drive our hellish foe, true peace unto us bring, and through all perils guide us safe beneath your sacred wing. Through you may we the Father know, through you the Eternal Son, and you the Spirit of them both, thrice blessed, three in one. All glory to the Father be, and to the risen Son. The same to you, O Paraclete, while endless ages run. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. That's um, a prayer that we normally pray or, or chant in Latin, the Veni Creator Spiritus, and I think that's a, a good English translation that I just pray. It's in the compendium of the Catechism of the Catholic Church. It's beautiful. It's, it's a little difficult to translate well when you have a beautiful poetic uh-huh. Latin text into English or any vernacular language for that matter. Right. But as you probably have heard at ordinations and at other celebrations, we sing this Veni Creator Spiritus, Mentes Tuorum Visita. I don't know if uh, you remember or heard about Archbishop Knoll. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
who was a great bishop of our diocese, his Episcopal motto came from this prayer. His motto was, Mentes Tuorum Visita, which is really the second line of the Veni Creator. It's Veni Creator Spiritus, Mentes Tuorum Visita. Basically, visit our minds. Um, hmm. I could go on and on about this, but anyhow. Interesting. Yeah. Well, one thing I thought maybe you could share a little bit about is uh, an article in the May 17th edition of Today's Catholic had a story about an investigation that was led by yourself and five other bishops into the alleged apparitions of Our Lady of America, the Immaculate Virgin. Can you talk a little bit about that alleged apparition and then what the process is for looking into something like that? There was a precious blood sister. Sister Ephraim Noisel. Later in her religious life, she went back to her baptismal name, so huh. that was Sister Mildred. But at the time of the alleged apparitions, she was Sister Ephraim. The alleged apparitions began in 1956 in Rome City. She was stationed there as a precious blood sister. Mm -hmm. And then throughout her religious life, she was assigned other places. That's why these other dioceses were involved. Okay. So a few years ago, there was... There's some people who are, are very devoted to, to this title, this Our Lady of America, believing that this was a supernatural apparition of the Blessed Mother to this nun. So there's always been some uncertainty about mm -hmm. whether it was true. It never, she had a spiritual director, a priest who ended up becoming the Archbishop of Cincinnati. Okay. Because the Precious Blood Sisters are based in o Ohio, but uh -huh. his name was Father Leibold, later Archbishop Leibold. You know, he was her spiritual director, and he guided her, and she revealed all this to him. And he approved private devotion to Our Lady of America, mm -hmm. some prayers and a medal and things like that. But he never made a judgment about the supernatural nature of the apparitions. He basically testified how she was a very devout woman that the teachings or the messages that she said that she received, that they were doctrinally sound. Mm -hmm. But since this has always been a question mark, a question came to the bishops and all the bishops had to be involved because, you know, there were these reports in, in five different, five or six different dioceses. Mm -hmm. So we bishops got together and sent something to the USCCB saying, you know, this is crossing diocesan boundaries, it's different dioceses, how do you do this right. investigation? And we thought that they could do it, that the USCCB. Uh -huh. But then the Vatican Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith said, no, this isn't the job of an Episcopal conference, it should be one bishop. And then the other bishops could collaborate. <laughs> so then they all asked me to be the one bishop to lead the investigation. Because um, it was in our diocese, Rome yeah, City, that a lot of this started there, happened. and okay. probably most of the messages too. Okay, so I reluctantly agreed because I and really we had nothing in our archives about it. So, huh. how do you investigate? Most of the information was in Cincinnati and other places, but there were lay people very devoted to this reported apparition, and they had already collected all the documents, letters, okay. I mean, hundreds of letters. That she had written? That she had written to Archbishop Leibold and to others, and that they had written to her, plus just a lot to go through. So 
that made our work easier. And what I did was, as the Vatican directed, you have to set up a commission. So I had a commission to study it. One member was a canon lawyer, and five others were theologians, hmm. some with special expertise in Mariology, the study of Mary. Mm -hmm. So all of us had to go through all of this material. I mean, it's, it's several hundred, actually a couple thousand pages. Wow. And not only it's all about her whole life, it's her communications, it's what others wrote. Plus, um, we visited, we had a couple of our commission members visit a couple of the elderly sisters who still remembered her or knew her, mm -hmm. had all the data on reported favors or even miracles at Rome City or elsewhere through her intercession, all these testimonies. So it took a long time. It took us over a year. It would have taken several years if we didn't have all the documentation, but this was already done mm -hmm. by, by lay people. And some of the documentation came from the archives at the Archdiocese of Cincinnati. In any event, to make a long story short, we were all very open to the possibility that this might have been supernatural, that maybe Our Lady appeared. Mm -hmm. However, as we were each reading, and we all had a set of all this documentation, so we were all quite open because the message was very beautiful, mm -hmm. especially the message of purity and chastity. And But as we studied all the documentation, we all came to the same conclusion separately, which is that probably in her prayer, by God's grace, she had some received some beautiful spiritual insights. Mm -hmm. However, there wasn't really evidence to determine that, yeah, this was an actual physical apparition of Mary. No. Okay. And even Archbishop Leibold, who was her spiritual director, we found a letter that he wrote saying that he didn't know uh -huh. if it was really true. But it seemed very different from apparitions like Lourdes or Fatima or Guadalupe and all the reported favors or miracles, there was nothing that could not be ex explained by natural causes. So doctrinally, most of, most of what is there, the great majority is, is very solid. Mm -hmm. There was one little problem there, a reference to St. Joseph as a co-redeemer, right. which is, not the teaching of the church. That was mentioned in the article. Can you clarify what would be the, the teaching of the church and what co-redeemer would imply that would be inaccurate? Right. Well, obviously, Jesus is the sole redeemer of okay. the human race. We talk about there is a title of Mary as co-redemptrix. Mm -hmm. It's not a dogmatic definition, but the mm -hmm. idea of how Mary cooperated in the plan of redemption in the redemption of the human race as the Virgin Mother of God. It was her yes, especially at the Annunciation, was necessary for the incarnation to take place. But never in tradition have we seen Joseph as spoken of as a co-redeemer. So okay. that was odd. That was not really correct. So our conclusion was really the private devotions are okay in the sense, except for that part of it, but that's mm -hmm. not really in the in the uh, devotional prayers. They don't mention St. Joseph, but, okay. but the idea, basically we approve what Archbishop Leibold approved, that this could be something private, that, you know, this was a holy woman, a woman of prayer who had these graced moments, it seems, in her prayer life, mm -hmm. but that we did not judge the quote, apparitions to be authentically supernatural. 
Okay. And that means that there can't be public devotion. Mm-hmm. There's hundreds of people who've claimed to have seen the Blessed Virgin Mary, claims mm-hmm. apparitions. So the church is very cautious about this. You know, we really have to have more certainty to allow something to become a matter of public devotion. Right. These private revelations are things that need to be studied, you know, and um, to determine the authenticity. So, so that's basically been the result. And as you know, it was an, uh, made public uh, the results a few weeks ago. Now I think we can move forward without mm-hmm. this uh, lingering question. Sure. How long does that process take from start to finish of doing an examination like this? Well, it depends on on the amount of things that have to be studied. In this case, it took us about a year, but it would have taken us several years mm-hmm. if we had to do all the gathering of information, which uh, was already done mm-hmm. by lay people right. who were, you know, had this devotion to Our Lady of America. You mentioned there's a lot of alleged apparitions, a lot of people that, are, that might say this. Is this a common thing to be doing the investigations, or are they usually not investigated unless there's a, a huge demand, or how does that yeah, work? I don't think they're usually investigated, uh, unless there's some devotion that's growing. Okay. Yeah, okay. Uh, there normally wouldn't be investigated. I think basically some are on the face. You can see that they're not true. Mm-hmm. I mean, it could be someone psychologically disturbed making a claim or sure. whatever. Some that are doctrinally problematic mm-hmm. are, you know, there's an evident falsehood to them. Sometimes you discover it's a hoax, mm. but then there are some that are uh, judged to be true mm-hmm. or to be authentic. And how long it usually takes, I think it just depends. I mean, I, I, I wouldn't know how long did it take for Lourdes or Fatima to be approved by the church. I'd have to go back and look, mm-hmm. but I think it would vary according to, to each one how much information needs to be gathered and studied. Well, speaking of Mary, recently we've been talking about the matriarchs of the Old Testament the past several episodes in the month of May. And coming up, we'll see if there's a connection to these women and the Blessed Mother. And we have some listener-submitted questions right here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman here with our bishop. And last week we wrapped up our series on the matriarchs of the Old Testament. It was fascinating to learn about these different women and their role in the kind of Old Testament version of salvation history. And thought it'd be interesting to see how that compares with Mary. And I'm curious if if there's some foreshadowing there with these women of the Old Testament that we see maybe with things like infertility of the women and maybe infidelity and how Mary is almost kind of like an antidote for some of that or um, a fulfillment of what we are, are truly called to as, as Christians. So maybe you can share a little bit about how these matriarchs kind of lead us toward Mary and how maybe she's a, a fulfillment of some of these? Yeah. I think there's different things that we see in the different matriarchs that perhaps some of their virtues that, that we see in Mary. I wouldn't, when I think of these matriarchs, I don't see any of them as what I would call direct foreshadowings or direct types. 
I think we go back to Eve, who, right. you know, I mean, in a sense, we, you know, Mary is the new Eve. Mm-hmm. We have Eve's disobedience, Mary's obedience. I think we can, that's very much part of the tradition of the church. Jesus as the new Adam, Mary as the new Eve. But when we look at the matriarchs, I think there's certain things that I guess you can see some parallels with the Virgin Mary. By the way, one of Our Lady's titles is Chosen Daughter of Israel. As a matter of fact, we have a mass in the collection of masses of the Blessed Virgin Mary. One of them is the Blessed Virgin Mary Chosen Daughter of Israel, which is actually a beautiful mass in honor of the Blessed Mother. I don't know if you've ever attended mass. Not uh, that I recall. With that, ti- with that using that title. It's, I've only celebrated that mass a few times, but it's something that I, I think is, is really beautiful. I should have brought the text. I could have shared them with you. Of course, the first matriarch is Abraham's wife, Sarah. So when you think about Sarah, you know, and, and she was, of course, chosen to be the mother of Isaac. And God had promised Abraham that he would be the father of many nations, many peoples. We even speak of Abraham as our father in faith. So in a sense, we could think of Sarah as the mother, you know, the mother of believers. Mm -hmm. She definitely was a woman of faith. She was a woman of obedience. There's a couple places in the New Testament where her faith and obedience are praised. You can read in the letter to the Hebrews or the first letter of St. Peter. So I think in relationship to Mary, of course, Mary is the woman of faith par excellence. Mm -hmm. She conceived Jesus because of her faith. Now, Mary wasn't barren. She was a virgin, though, whereas Sarah was barren. And uh, it was because of you know her faith, the, the faith of Abraham, the faith of Sarah, that that promise was able to be fulfilled. There is one thing when God said to Abraham, when he, he, he was telling Abraham that he would be the father of many nations, where God said, is anything too marvelous for the Lord to do? Hmm. At the appointed time, about this time next year, God said to Abraham, I will return to you and Sarah will have a son. It makes me think about the angel Gabriel when he announced to Mary that she would be the mother of the son of God. Gabriel said, for nothing will be impossible for God. That's kind of an echo of God saying to Abraham, is anything too marvelous Mm -hmm. for the Lord to do? So I think that's a neat kind of thing to, to think about that. One other little thing is is Sarah was known for her hospitality, uh-huh. and we can think of Mary visiting Elizabeth, you know, her reaching out, kind of, you could speak of that as hospitality. Sure. So, so I think there's some parallels there between Sarah and the Blessed Mother. Then you look at the second matriarch. Do you remember who that is, Kyle? Rebecca. Very good. And, and she was described in the book of Genesis as very beautiful. A virgin, untouched by man. You know, so the first time she's mentioned in the Bible, she, they mention that she's a virgin. And then the story continues, and she's, you know, marries Isaac, and uh, she was sterile for a while, and then eventually gave birth to Esau and Jacob. And remember, she had that special preference for Jacob. Mm-hmm. 
as a matter of fact, we talked about the trickery involved, you know, and she was involved in that. But it's interesting when you think about, okay, should we not admire Rebecca because, you know, here she's deceptive with her husband, Isaac, so that he would choose Jacob over Esau. Mm -hmm. But, you know, when you think about it, she was cooperating with God and God's plan because God had revealed to her before she gave birth to Jacob and Esau that Jacob was to be the one who would bear the promise. So in a sense, rather than seeing her as being deceptive, you could say, no, she actually cooperated with God. Uh So I guess you can see that with Mary. I mean, obviously, who cooperated more with God and his plan and his promise than the Blessed Virgin Mary. And the fact that Rebecca was a virgin at the time of her marriage to Isaac, that's another parallel. But, of course, she didn't have a virgin birth. Mm-hmm. Uh, one aspect of, of Rebecca is, is she was very single-minded. You know, she was very focused on, on her son Jacob and on fulfilling God's will. And, of course, you can think of the single-mindedness of Mary. She was pure of heart. Uh, everything you know, was, was, was focused on her son. Mm-hmm. So then we come to Rachel, mm-hmm. another woman of Israel. And this is really a beautiful story when you read about Rachel of love and devotion. Rachel was another, she also s- suffered with sterility. Rachel was the uh, wife of Jacob and you know, because she was unable to give birth, her servant Leah is the one who had many of the children with Isaac, I mean with Jacob. But then near the end, Rachel actually did bear two sons, mm-hmm. Joseph, the famous Joseph, who was sold into slavery by his brothers in Egypt, etc. Mm-hmm. And she was the mother of Benjamin. And of course, she died giving birth to Benjamin. Rachel overcame her sterility through God's help. She was a woman of sorrow because when you think of losing Joseph, you know, she thought he was dead, but she wept. As a matter of fact, uh, Matthew's Gospel, chapter 2, you know, refers to the prophecy of Jeremiah, which spoke about Rachel's great sorrow. Matthew is speaking about the slaughter of the holy innocents and mentions Rachel. Mm-hmm. In any event, I think we, you know, the aspect of Mary as our sorrowful mother, I think you could see that parallel with Rachel because mm-hmm. Mary endured the death of her son as Rachel, you know, lost her son, Joseph. Mm-hmm. And then the, the last of the matriarchs that we spoke about, Actually, there's a lot of other New Testament, Old Testament women we could actually look at and see some aspects of of our Blessed Mother in, but we're just talking about the matriarchs here, uh-huh. is Leah. And, um, you know, Leah was the one who ended, you know, was the mother of all those other sons of Jacob. So Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulon, Dinah. So, so she was the ancestor of all of these I mean, the mother of all of these, and then also the ancestor of Moses and David, hmm. because one of her sons was Judah, and Ju- it's the tribe of Judah. All right. these sons are the, the tribes, you know, the 12 tribes. Uh-huh. Of course, two of the tribes 
are from Rachel, right? You know, uh, Joseph and Benjamin. But but Jesus was born of the line of Judah, so really he's in the line of Leah, right? Not Rachel, which is an interesting thing to 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 think about. I'm not quite sure about a parallel between Leah and Mary. You know, I guess we could say, well, Leah was very faithful to Jacob. You know, she had these 10 sons. She was devoted to the family. Of course, we know of Mary's devotion to her son. But I don't see any real direct connection there. Other than, of course, Jesus was born Mm -hmm. of the line of Jacob through Judah, which, of course, is Leah's son, Judah. Mm -hmm. I think looking at these and hearing these stories, and you mentioned that this is all before the Ten Commandments. So some of the the relationships and things we look back at and say, like, wh- why was this accepted? You know, why is this right. something? Well, first of all, they weren't perfect. These Old Testament figures, as much as we might praise one thing, we might say, well, yeah, but don't do everything that they did, you know, especially looking at David, you know, we hadn't getting into that. But it seems like the Holy Family that... Joseph and Mary's relationship is the perfect model. And we can kind of see these husband and wife relationships that had their rocky moments or poor decisions or, or times that they didn't trust God or however you would look at it. And we can see that with Joseph and Mary, they, they do it correctly. They are the, the perfect model of how to live out chastity and obedience correctly. Yeah, yeah. And again, this is progressive revelation right. throughout the Old Testament leading up to the definitive revelation in Jesus. So, especially in these lives of the patriarchs and matriarchs, yeah, we see concubines and things like that. Mm-hmm. It was This was a very ancient religious, you know, like you said before Moses, before, the ten, right. before God gave the Ten Commandments. Now, there still was the natural law, but... Mm-hmm. But there were, you know, it was imperfect in its moral code, so to speak. Right. Do you have a, a one of the matriarchs that we talked about a favorite? You know, I probably would have to say Sarah. I, I, you know, Sarah's a a name in my family. My grandmother, maternal grandmother, was Sarah. Okay. You know, Sarah's laughter is an interesting thing we talked about. But I'd, I'd say, really, her faith. Her faith was pretty amazing. All right. Well, if you have any questions for Bishop, you can ask them by going to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. You can call or text the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598. And coming up, we've got questions about Mary, priests, spreading the faith, and more on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. What's the difference between Notre Dame Federal Credit Union and a bank? Well, banks are owned by investors looking to make a profit. Notre Dame FCU is different. We are a not-for-profit member-owned cooperative. Our mission is to help our members improve their lives by providing products and services to save them money. If we end up with too much money ourselves, we simply give it away to our members' favorite charities. Last year, over a million dollars. You already share our values. Why not share in our benefits? Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman here with our bishop who's going to answer questions that you've submitted. Our first question, actually all three of these questions come from the Rekindle the Fire Men's Conference, some leftover questions from that Q&A. 
When Mary accepted Gabriel's call to be the mother of God, did she know that her son would be tortured and crucified? I don't think so. I think maybe a little later she had the idea of that her son would suffer. Mm-hmm. You know, when, when she and Joseph presented Jesus in the temple, remember Simeon mm-hmm. said that, that the child was destined to be the rise and fall of many in Israel, a sign to be contradicted. And he said, and your soul will be pierced with a sword. Right. So I think she had some inkling that there was going to be suffering. But that really, I, I doubt, unless God gave her infused knowledge, which is possible, I, I don't think. I mean, there's a lot of questions that come up about what did Mary know? Mm-hmm. Did you, you, you've, you know that song, Mary, Did You Know? Yeah. yeah. Do, I don't it's know a, if you like the song. popular around Christmas time. Right, right. But, you know, there's just, you know, it's, it's kind of not the most uh, theologically Catholic kind of song. Uh-huh. I mean, the fact of those questions that, that are sung, you know, it's kind of like, Mary, didn't you, did you know that your son wasn't just an ordinary kid? Yeah. You know, did you know that he would walk on water? Did you know your baby boy will calm the storm, that he'll give sight to a blind man? You know, all these questions. Mary, did you know that your baby boy would one day rule the nations, uh-huh. save your sons and daughters? So, you know, there's, there's this question about, well, what did Mary really know? Was she, I mean, the one big question is, did she know that her son was divine? Mm-hmm. Now, as Catholics, I think in our tradition, yeah, we, we think she did. Mm-hmm. I mean, after all, what Gabriel told her, that the child, that he'll be great. He'll be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. Gabriel told her he'll reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. So I do think, yeah, she had that knowledge Mm -hmm. that came from the angel Gabriel. Now, I don't think she had a precise knowledge of the Trinity, which we're going to talk about, I think, next week about Uh the hypostatic union that, you know, her son was the son of God with two natures, human and divine. I mean, that kind of foreknowledge of everything. No, but I think she, she did know that, I mean, after all, she conceived miraculously. I mean, she knew she was a virgin. That's that's a tip that something's unique here. (laughs) Yeah, something's unique here. So I do believe she, she... I do think she believed in the divinity of her son, uh, that he was the Messiah and son of God. But some of those other things, like the question comes up, did did Mary know that Jesus was going to rise from the dead? You know, that's another question. Hmm. I always think it's interesting that I think when you read, you know, the story of of the finding of the child Jesus in the temple, it was three days, Mm -hmm. okay, three days that he was missing. And then she and Joseph found him in the temple on on the third day. St. Luke tells us about that and about other things in the infancy narratives that Mary pondered all these things in her heart. Mm -hmm. So I wonder if Mary did have some infused knowledge from God in pondering all this in her heart Mm -hmm. that her son would die and rise from the dead. I mean, I don't know. Yeah. I don't think she would have known with precision, but maybe she had some some infused knowledge from God of these things. But all this is speculative. I think what Mary, some of this, these questions about what she knew and what she didn't know, I think she did know that there was going to be suffering. 
because of what Simeon had told her when she presented Jesus in the temple. But I don't think she would have known the exact details. Okay. Another listener asked, is it healthy for priests to live in isolation rather than in community? It's never healthy to live in isolation, but but to live alone doesn't mean you're living in isolation. I live alone, uh-huh. and I'm not at all isolated. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm with people a lot. I have, but I don't live in community. Uh-huh. So it's it's a question of how a priest who's who's living alone, or how any person for that matter. But we're talking about priests here. It's our choice whether to be. I mean, I have a lot of good friends. I have community, mm-hmm. and I think that's the same thing. Our priests have their parish community. They may not live with other priests in the rectory, but they have their, hope. you know, probably they have good friends, they have parishioners as their community, but there's always that danger of becoming isolated. Mm-hmm. But that's up to us. But a priest or anyone who becomes isolated, it, it means that they're kind of withdrawing from others, mm-hmm. and that's not healthy. That's not good. Is there something that we can do as parishioners to help prevent that, reach out more often, invite the priest, uh, maybe once things get a little healthier in our world, invite priests over for yeah. birthday parties, for dinner, things like that, to, to help him feel more part of our family and our yeah. community? Yeah, especially if they live alone. I think that's a yeah. good thing. Yeah. You know, and if they're, you know, if you look at, I mean, I look at my life, or even when I was a priest... I'd always, I'd get a lot of invitations and actually more than I could say yes to. Sure. And even as bishop, yeah, I get a lot more than I can say yes to. It's just not possible. People are always reaching out, which is really very beautiful. Uh-huh. Um, so I think it is, especially if there are some priests who maybe are experiencing a little loneliness. But if priests, you know, say, well, listen, I really, you know, I, I, I don't have time. I have so many. You have to understand that too, because mm-hmm. that's, that's also possible. Like I get invitations and I can't say yes to all of them or I won't, I mean, I'd be out every night, you know, so, so anyhow, that's a good question. All right. Another conference attendee said, how can all of us here help you most effectively spread the faith in our diocese? Oh, there's so many different ways. I mean, I think I say this all the time at confirmations, it's your witness, you know, your witness mm-hmm. by your words and by your actions. That's the way to evangelize. That's how we spread the faith. And I think a lot of Catholics I know, they they speak about, yeah, I try to witness by my lives, by doing good, by being a good example, by being generous, but more are not as comfortable spreading the faith by words. Mm-hmm. You know, where they, for example, they'll They'll, they'll live their faith by deeds, which is primary. We shouldn't, that is primary, you know, but we shouldn't be afraid to also share explicitly mm-hmm. our faith with others, to talk about our Catholic faith or to talk, to talk about the Lord and his meaning in our lives and, and why we believe what we do. To enter into those conversations, those faith conversations, I think is another way, a beautiful way to evangelize. And I think a lot of Catholics could do a better job in that. And probably maybe some of it is some don't feel, you know, oh, discussing religion, it's going to end up in an argument. No, I'm not talking about going out and proselytizing, but but just, you know, gently mm-hmm. sharing the faith or inviting people to the church. Sure. All right. Just a reminder, you can ask your questions by going to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. You could call or text the Holy Cross College text line 260 436 
9598. And coming up, Bishop will answer questions about COVID-19 and the diocesan finances, the new president of the University of St. Francis, and more here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman here with our bishop, and I will be asking questions that our listeners submitted. One of our listeners asked, has the COVID pandemic impacted our diocese financially? Are donations to Peter's Pence and similar funds down? Oh, interesting question. Definitely the pandemic has impacted the diocese financially. Mm -hmm. It's impacted our parishes because the loss of income, you know, now that some parishes are doing better than others where people are contributing, have been contributing through these last few months by online giving or sending their envelopes into the parish. I think maybe on an average, though, income is probably down by about a half. So it really impacts us, the parishes and the schools, especially because the bills are still there. Mm-hmm. You know, salaries have to be paid, buildings that need to be maintained, sure. et cetera. And Of course, when our parishes and schools are affected, so is the diocese, because Mm -hmm. where does the diocese get its funds? Not only from the bishop's appeal, but from uh, assessments to the parishes. So, yeah, it's it's not easy. I'm hoping we can recoup some of this. As far as special collections, I'm hoping this Sunday's Pentecost collection, it's really, really important for the education of our seminarians. This is probably one of the biggest line items in our budget. We need about a million dollars a year for the education of our seminarians, the tuition, room and board, et cetera. So I don't know how we'll do. I I really hope we do well because Mm -hmm. we really need that. Don't want us to go into a deep deficit. So I encourage people to be to be generous if they can. Other collections, other funds like Peter's Pence, we haven't had those collections yet. That's not till the end of June. Uh, so I really don't know. But but anyhow, I think we'll get out over this. We'll get through this financial challenge. Thankfully, our, our diocese is in pretty good financial shape before the pandemic began. So so we can absorb some of the hit, but, but long-term it could really be very difficult. Sure. Um, I've had to cut a half a million dollars from our budget for the new fiscal year. Hmm. Because of the pandemic or? No, this was actually planned before the pandemic, um, just in the sense of being fiscally responsible and dialogues with our priests, et cetera. There was a need to give them relief on their assessments because of some financial challenges in parishes even before the pandemic. Mm -hmm. Some of them are related to schools, some are related to other financial challenges, and and this is kind of across the board. So we had to do about a half a million dollars in cuts, which um, is not easy to do Mm -hmm. because when you make cuts, that means programs are affected, number of personnel, et cetera. But I think we have to try to be lean in our budget and really be prudent. I'm very conscious that this is money that's sacrifices from our people, so we want to be very wise and and very uh, responsible in the use of funds. I have a good, very good diocesan finance officer, Joe Ryan. He's excellent, and business office, the workers in the business office, and also the um, diocesan finance council, which is a great body that that advises me on financial matters. Sure. Right, the other thing that hurts us is the decline in investment income, obviously. Oh, with, right. You know, we depend a certain amount on our investment income to make our budget. So, of course, it's been like a roller coaster mm-hmm. the last couple months. 
but overall it's it's a significant decline so we'll have to see how we do when we see how this pans out sure all right another listener submitted question is what can you tell us about father zimmer who will be the new president at the university of saint francis how will he work to increase catholic presence on campus well, I can't foretell how he's going to uh, serve as president yet. He hasn't taken office and increased Catholic presence on campus, but I, but he is uh, has quite a resume. Uh, Father Zimmer was incarnated here in our diocese I, a few years ago. I incarnated him. Which he, means what? That means he became a, pre, a diocesan priest for Fort Wayne South Bend. He had been a Jesuit priest. Okay. So he was ex-cardinated from the Jesuits and incarnated into our diocese. He had been here a few years already teaching at Notre Dame, and he asked to join the diocese. And then there's always an experimental period of a few years, maximum of five. I think it was after three years that I incarnated him. And he was serving. I gave him a diocesan assignment to be pastor at St. Patrick's in Walkerton. So while teaching at Notre Dame in the Mendoza School of Business, the College of Business, he was living and, and serving at St. Patrick's in Walkerton and did a great job there. He comes with a very interesting background, very a uh, very diverse background mm-hmm. as a Jesuit. You know, he, he has his doctorate from the University of Pennsylvania in uh, communications. He also... Attended, he got his MBA at the University of Chicago. He studied at Berkeley, the Jesuit School of Theology, before he was ordained. I think he got his BA in philosophy at Loyola in New Orleans and got a master's degree in English language and literature in, in the University of Minnesota. So he has, he has quite a, an educational background. Yeah. But then in his, in his uh, professional life as a priest, before he was at Notre Dame, he had been a professor and Director of Leadership Development at the Creighton University School of Medicine Mm -hmm. in Omaha, Nebraska. And then even prior to that, he had been teaching at uh, Georgetown University, and I think that was in the area of communications. He's had a lot of interesting things. He even spent a few years working for the Vatican at the Congregation for Catholic Education. So this really fits with him becoming a president of a Catholic university. He worked in Rome, at that congregation, which really oversaw, you know, Catholic universities and colleges throughout the world. Now, he was responsible, I think, for English language, you know, universities in English-speaking countries. So, so he really is a very interesting, very talented, and I'm looking forward to seeing how he does which I think will be very well at the University of St. Francis as, you know, during these days we're saying our farewell to Sister Elise, Mm -hmm. who's been president there for so long and done such a wonderful job. And now we welcome a priest, first priest president of the University of St. Francis. All right. And a listener asked, has there been any further development regarding the Medjugorje apparitions? You know, that's an uh, interesting uh, question. The only further development that I've seen in the news is, you know, there was a prohibition on official pilgrimages. Mm-hmm. In other words, people could go, but not like um, under the auspices of like a diocesan pilgrimage or a parish pilgrimage, because that seemed to suggest that that the church has determined that it was, act- uh, it's, it was truly authentic, mm-hmm. whereas that judgment hasn't yet been made. Well, recently, some months ago, I read that uh, Um, now they are allowing these official uh, pilgrimages. Uh, So that's the only development. But 
As far as any definitive ruling on the authenticity of the apparitions, no. We've been okay. waiting for years. The Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith has been looking at this. So, so there's been not yet been a definitive judgment by the church on the authenticity. However, there's so much good that happens there, so many, so many prayers and uh, good fruits mm-hmm. and conversions that... Um, the church is not restricting or not saying that people can't go there and now is even authorizing official pilgrimages. All right. And finally, a listener asked, with summer around the corner, I was wondering, when was the last time Bishop went swimming? Oh, I used to go swimming all the, a lot in the summer, but I did. Th- I think I went a, last summer a few times. I was visiting with some friends up at a lake in uh-huh. Michigan. Some friends were visiting from Spain. And uh, we spent a weekend with a family from Mishawaka who have a place at the lake, a lake in Michigan. And I remember swimming in the lake. I'm trying to think if I did any other swimming last summer. I I probably was in a pool a couple times, but not like uh, I used to, you know, and maybe this summer, I hope. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much, Bishop, for another great episode of Truth and Charity. Could we get your Episcopal blessing before we go? Yes. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now and forever. Our help is in the name of the Lord. Who made heaven and earth. May Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Bishop. You're welcome, Kyle. To listen to previous episodes anytime, search for Truth in Charity on the Apple, Google, or Spotify podcast apps, or go to RedeemerRadio.com and click on Truth in Charity. Truth in Charity with Bishop Rhodes is brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union.